If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, you'll hear an interview I did with the writer and historian Tim Bouverie. Tim is the author of a new book, Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill and the Road to War. We met in London to discuss why British attempts to reason with the Nazi dictator failed to prevent the outbreak of the Second World War. In contemporary parlance, I think that appeasement is seen as the ultimate dirty word, really. It's seen as doing a deal with the devil. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? You're completely right that appeasement is a word with very negative connotations nowadays. But it's important to remember that at the time, in the 30s, it didn't carry such uh, heavy implications of shame and surrender, etc. The first time that it was used in Parliament, I think, was by Anthony Eden, who was a junior foreign office minister, and later went on to have a fantastic reputation as an anti-appeaser. I also don't think that the idea of appeasement per se is in any way dishonourable. As Winston Churchill himself said when he was prime minister during the Second World War, appeasement from a position of strength can be extremely honourable. It's magnanimous and it's prudent. It's only appeasement from a position of weakness because you are too afraid or do not have the moral political fibre to stand up for what is right that uh, is shameful. So what were some of the motivating factors or or the good intentions um, behind appeasement in the 1930s? Well, the most obvious one was a very, very sincere and very reasonable desire to avoid another world war. Over a million British and Commonwealth soldiers died during the First World War. 16.5 million people died worldwide during the First World War. The idea that this country was going to have to go through more battles of the Somme, Passchendaele, Ypres, uh, a mere 20 years after the war to end our wars. This was a horrifying idea. And it's completely understandable that people would have tried to do almost anything to avoid that. The problem is, at what stage does your intense and very legitimate desire to avoid a conflict make that conflict more likely? In that by appeasing a aggressive and militaristic dictator, do you merely encourage him, but also make him more powerful and allow him to gather within his fold sources of power in new states which he's taken over, while at the same time frightening would-be allies into moving into the enemy camp? The other 
really important motivation for appeasement was that it didn't seem entirely unreasonable to the appeasers an awful lot of what Hitler seemed to be demanding on the international sphere. However horrified they were about what was going on in Germany, domestically, the British really were shocked by the persecution of the Jews, the dismantling of German democracy, the Nazi dictatorship. All of these went down extremely badly in Britain, although not entirely. There were some sections of the British upper classes in particular, who were quite sympathetic towards Nazi Germany. But the idea which Hitler kept on going on and on and on about, and many other German politicians before him had gone on about, that the British had treated the Germans badly after the First World War, that the Versailles peace settlement had been unjust, that it had imposed ruinous reparations on a defeated country, amputated parts of its territory for the benefit of new nations like Czechoslovakia and the reconstructed Poland, taken away its colonies, humiliated it by assigning Germany sole responsibility for starting the First World War, people felt that this was unfair, unjust and counterproductive. And a major spur to appeasement was trying to correct these deficiencies in the Versailles settlement. You mentioned there about the awareness of anti-Semitism and Nazi ideology um, in Britain. When did that first emerge? So this is really interesting. I think that most people nowadays seem to think, and previous decades, the general idea is that we were not aware of quite how horrible the Nazis were until after the Second World War and after the Holocaust was revealed, or at least until Kristallnacht in November 1938, when the Nazis enacted a massive pogrom against the German Jews. This was categorically not true. It's one of the most striking things I found in my research. The first nationwide act of persecution against the Jews occurred in April 1933, two months after Hitler came to power. Previously, in March 1933, the Nazis had opened Dachau concentration camp, which was used to house political prisoners, opponents of the regime, social democrats, communists, radical publishers. The speed with which the Germans and the ruthlessness with which Hitler established his dictatorship, all of this was incredibly well known. It would, and it was reported the whole time. There were 40,000 people who demonstrated in Hyde Park against the Nazi boycott of Jewish shops in April 1933. And there were other demonstrations in Manchester, Leeds and Glasgow. This was big news. And so the British really weren't under any illusions or anyone who read a newspaper couldn't be said to be under any illusions as to the character of the Nazi regime from the beginning. That raises an interesting point as to how much the policymakers were informed by public opinion in Britain at the time. Massively. I think public opinion is one of the most important subjects when thinking about the 1930s and the constraints with which the decision makers felt themselves to be operating within. It's a massive, massive decision to go to war or not. And previously, it had not been taken lightly, but it was the preserve of purely a very small executive. The British people were not consulted before the 1914-18 war as to whether they wished to fight, because it was generally assumed that most wars were fairly small affairs, fought abroad by professional armies and a world-renowned navy, and it didn't involve mass carnage. There was a lot of carnage, obviously, in the Napoleonic Wars, but those have been a long time ago. The wars that Britain had fought since the fall of Napoleon were fairly small, limited in very far-flung parts of the world, not ever in Europe. But the extreme horror of the First World War and the arrival of democracy, the 
electorate massively expanded after the First World War, not least with the enfranchisement of women. And there are a lot of debates as to what effect women had on public opinion to do with war. A lot of people, a lot of anti-appeasement conservative MPs certainly thought that the women's vote was essentially pacifist, and this was constraining the government more. And Chamberlain certainly played to the women's vote on this. And so what all these players had to keep on asking themselves is, would there be enough support for another conflict? Nobody thought that the next conflict was going to be a small operation in a faraway country like the 19th century. Everyone knew it was going to be a massive war and a massive slaughter. And they actually even thought it was going to be even worse than it was. People thought that whole cities would be destroyed instantaneously. People thought that London would be wiped out in practically a month of German bombing, whereas in fact, an awful lot of it is still standing after the Blitz. And whether you could have the support of your population and your civilian population and the support not just of your domestic population, but the populations of the British Empire, the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, that was crucial. And rightly or wrongly, and I think there's a bit of both in this, the leaders of the British government did not believe that the British people and the empire would be prepared to stand up to Hitler at any time before the summer of 1939. So it was believed that the public outrage at anti-Semitism and Nazi ideology was not as strong as the public desire for um, avoiding war. Yes, but also we don't go to war or have not really gone to war just because of things that are going on in domestic politics. Nobody was talking about going to war with the Soviet Union in the 30s because there was no threat that the Soviet Union really posed in strategic terms to the British or the British Empire. People in Britain might have feared the ideology of the Soviet Union, but they didn't think that the Red Army was going to start rolling through Kent anytime soon. So although the British were utterly disgusted in the large by the Nazi persecution of the Jews and the brutality of the dictatorship that Hitler had established, these were not in themselves reasons enough to go to war. So over the course of the 30s, several um, important and influential figures went to Nazi Germany and had visits with Hitler. Can you tell us a bit about those? This is one of the most extraordinary phenomenons of the appeasement years, that you have people who do not have official positions in the machinery of the British government or the Foreign Office, who are nevertheless able to go and have meetings with Hitler and his leading subordinates and try and cobble together some sort of peace deal or just promote Anglo-German friendship. And it was extraordinary. It was born in large part from the sentiment which was fairly strong amongst elements of the British upper classes that Nazi Germany was a country that should be admired. They had managed to abolish unemployment where we were still dealing with very large levels of unemployment in the middle of the 30s. They had rejuvenated Germany, a defeated country. They had hosted the Olympics. They were, and crucially, they were opponents of communism, which was considered during the 30s by the British, at least, a far greater threat than fascism, certainly by the upper classes. And it's a misconception on the part of the Nazis, which is that they think that aristocrats, people with titles, still wield political influence in Britain. And they did, to a certain extent, the House of Lords still existed, they were part of of the legislature. But the idea that you held great political power just because you were the Duke of so-and-so has gone. The Nazis don't realise this. And so you have this extraordinary meeting of the 
similarly deluded British aristocrats and similarly deluded Nazis talking about some sort of Anglo-German alliance, which is totally at odds with mainstream British policy. And when these um, amateur diplomats visited Nazi Germany, what was it about Hitler particularly that won them over? They were all very impressed by his sincerity, which most people could say he, he, he was able to appear. And he had the ability to believe what he was saying when he was saying it, even if it didn't reflect his fundamental beliefs. So when he said he didn't want war, he could appear convincing. When he said he wanted an Anglo-German alliance, he was being sincere. For most of the 30s and 20s, Hitler was a great admirer of the British or the English, as he always called them, and their empire. And what he wanted to create in Russia was what India was for us, a major source of revenue, natural resources, but also particularly for him, an area which he could colonize and spread the German population to. And he had he had an intense admiration for the British, who he also thought were in some way racially akin to the Germans. The man most commonly associated with appeasement is, of course, Neville Chamberlain, who became prime minister in 1937. To what extent do you think he should be held responsible for appeasement policies? Well, he's got to be held almost entirely responsible because he was the prime minister who ran an incredibly personal policy in a very small environment. The cabinet's collective responsibility was sort of broken down. He behaved in quite a presidential way. Chamberlain, I think, is an example of a presidential prime minister. He had a massive majority in the House of Commons, so he could do pretty much what he wanted, but you don't need a majority in the Commons for foreign policy. So I think he has to be held very responsible for the policy of appeasement, even though he didn't invent it, he pursued it. And it was his judgment calls which determined Britain's reactions during the Czech crisis of September 1938, where we almost went to war with Germany. Whether he should be blamed and to the extent to which we should apportion blame to him for the predicament that Britain found herself in, in September 1938, and then again in September 1939, is a slightly different question. Why do you think that Chamberlain did so catastrophically misjudge Hitler and the danger that he posed? It was entirely possible to not meet Hitler and have the same information that Chamberlain had and come to a very different conception of what Hitler meant and what he desired. Winston Churchill had a very different idea of what Hitler was after. I think that there is a lot of truth in what Duff Cooper, the First Lord of the Admiralty said about Neville Chamberlain, which was that he had never met anybody in Birmingham who was in the least like Adolf Hitler. Chamberlain was a very decent, conscientious, hardworking, municipal politician and then a very gifted national administrator at the Department of Health and a fairly good Chancellor of the Exchequer. He wasn't very well versed in foreign affairs and he couldn't believe that anyone could really desire a war. And Hitler did keep on saying that he didn't desire a war. And he particularly said he didn't desire a war with the British, who he admired enormously, particularly for their empire. So Chamberlain starts from a basis of not thinking that anyone could want to have such an unimaginable nightmare. Who could possibly be this evil? But then he does allow himself to be completely duped by Hitler when he visits him in September 1938 on three occasions. And Hitler's way of uh, interacting with Chamberlain convinces him entirely wrongly that this is a man whom he could trust. And in that, there was quite a lot of personal vanity, I'm afraid. I think naive is a word which could be 
and should and is applied to him. There's been a big revisionist school to say he's not naive, but I actually haven't seen any evidence of this. The, the main thrust of revisionist arguments about the appeasement is that uh, Chamberlain didn't have any choice. He, Britain was not well armed enough in 1938. There was nothing else he could have done but appease Hitler. And that's a separate argument, also one I don't agree with, by the way. But there really is very little dispute that he was naive about Hitler. He comes back and time and time again, he says that Hitler can be trusted, that his ambitions are limited to Central and Eastern Europe. He is not after European domination. And he continues to put his faith in, and by the way, not just Hitler. He, he is naive about Mussolini as well. It's not just Hitler. Um, and this has disastrous consequences. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This was born of the fact that Chamberlain had failed to make any sort of deal with Hitler. So, yes, these are the men who were responsible for the policy, and it was a disastrous policy. Whether you would go as far as to call them guilty men 80 years on, I'm not so sure. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A pivotal moment in this story is, of course, the Munich Conference of 1938. Um, for listeners who might not know so much about that, could you explain what concessions were made and why that was such a significant moment? Well, the Munich Conference essentially gave Hitler everything that he had been demanding, which had previously been deemed unacceptable by the British cabinet. Chamberlain wanted to accept Hitler's demands for the whole of the Sudetenland, which was this fringe of Western Czechoslovakia, highly industrialized, highly fortified. Without it, the Czechs could never defend themselves against a German invasion, but which nevertheless held within it three million ethnic Germans who had been formerly part of the Habsburg Empire, not crucially part of Germany. And the Munich Conference awarded this portion of Czechoslovakia to the Germans in a very short period of time. By the time Neville Chamberlain boarded his aeroplane to go to Munich, there was 
very little dispute about the outcome of the conference. It was sort of a formality. The British and the French arrived determined to accept Hitler's proposals and Hitler had been persuaded by Mussolini and Goering, the second in command of the Nazi hierarchy and the commander of the Luftwaffe, not to go to war on this issue now. So it was a sort of done deal. And the actual conference was more of a ceremony with little bits of haggling about minor matters on the side. It's a disaster for the Czechs, and it's certainly the nail in their coffin. They cannot survive after the Munich Agreement as an independent country, and their country falls apart very swiftly afterwards. Its effect on Chamberlain, or more importantly, what Chamberlain represents, which is Britain and British interests and Western European interests, is slightly different in that it is, despite the euphoria which greets it at the beginning, swiftly realised to have been a humiliation. People are incredibly ecstatic that Chamberlain has brought back peace and that they're not going to have to wear gas masks and jump into trenches because German bombers are coming overhead. But very soon they realised, well, why were we digging trenches? Why were we trying on gas masks? We were doing this because we were being threatened by a bully and we've given in to the bully. And this is something that Britain hasn't historically done. We've let down our allies, the Czechs and the French, and we have no real guarantee beyond a tiny piece of paper that there aren't going to be further demands which are going to put us in a similar situation. So it lowers British prestige and crucially it tells Stalin that the Western powers cannot be trusted. And so the Soviets begin to think about doing a deal with their previous arch enemies, the Nazis. So I think one reason is that he, as a historian, had a great sense of traditional British foreign policy, which was that we have traditionally never allowed one power to dominate the continent. And that is why we opposed Louis XIV in the 17th century. That is why we opposed the ambitions of the French revolutionary nation and Napoleon in the late 18th and 19th centuries, why we opposed the Kaiserreich at the beginning of the 20th century, and why we eventually opposed the Third Reich. That seems to me the biggest reason, but he also had a sense that Germany would be out for a war of revenge after the First World War and realised that there was something deeply sinister about the Nazis. And other people realise this too. It's, there are some very obvious, even crude points one can make, but I think they're, they're valid. The, these were not people that necessarily hid their ideology. Their subordinates went around with skull and crossbones on their caps. There were quite a lot of telltale signs that these were a deeply nasty sect and ambassadors of an extremely pernicious ideology. Towards the end of the book, you look at the political crisis that unfolded when, during war, um, British forces were pushed back and then evacuated from Dunkirk and how it essentially split the cabinet in two. How close did Britain come, do you believe, to suing for peace at that point in 1940? How close is very hard to say, but there was definitely a serious risk of it. And I do think, in common with the very good historian John Lucas, that the cabinet at which Chamberlain succeeds in defeating Halifax on this question of opening up peace talks, that this was the most important 90 minutes of the war. And not because great armies were clashing or planes were flying, but this was the moment Hitler could have won. If, we, if Britain had given up, it would have been over. We were the only thing standing between him and victory. And although it is true to say that Britain did not win the Second World War, it was the Red Army which had to play the 
blood price for the defeat of the Wehrmacht and a huge amount of American help as well. It was our great claim to fame, I think, is that we prevented Hitler from winning it until the Soviet Union and the United States could enter. No peace deal would have ever been possible between the British Empire and Nazi Germany. They would have demanded an enormous amount from us, which would have been completely unacceptable, probably the fleet, which was our lifeline and elements of our empire. So I I feel sure, obviously, this is counterfactual, but I'm pretty sure any negotiations which had started would have broken down. But at that stage, what Churchill crucially realised, but Halifax didn't, is that the Germans could have leaked the fact that these talks were going on. And indeed, people might have found out about them anyway. And once the British people knew that we were in discussions about peace terms with Germany, all will to fight particularly to fight to the bitter end, would have evaporated. And what would you credit with maintaining the fight? Was it purely Churchill's sheer personal doggedness? This is, I believe, Churchill's greatest moment. This is, as I say, the moment when Britain could have gone under and Europe could have gone under Nazi domination permanently. And his opposition to this was crucial. But he wasn't as bellicose and just purely patriotic as uh, people might imagine he didn't he was he was clever he didn't he knew he did not have the support of conservative mps who had recently distrusted him so much that they wouldn't allow him to join the cabinet and had a far greater loyalty to the old prime minister the appeasing neville chamberlain so in the early cabinet meetings he toys with halifax he doesn't completely set his face against negotiations with the germans However, he gradually builds up support within the cabinet, within the wider cabinet, against these negotiations, and then plays a trump card, which is to ask for the whole cabinet, not just the war cabinet, where these discussions have been going on, the whole cabinet to meet, which include the Labour and Liberal ministers who've joined this wartime coalition. And there, he receives an overwhelming endorsement that, as Hugh Dalton uh, recorded in his diary, they would all continue fighting until the very last man of them was lying on the ground, choking in his own blood. And once Churchill has got the rest of the cabinet on side, he's able to defeat Halifax and the idea of peace talks is over. There's always a risk of straying into counterfactuals with this kind of history. But having said that, was there any stage at which you think appeasement could have worked? Or was trying to reason with Hitler always a doomed mission? I think trying to reason with Hitler was always a doomed mission. A different German leader who may have had many of the same aims as Adolf Hitler would have been an entirely different kettle of fish. Most of the pre-1933 German chancellors wanted to revise the Treaty of Versailles, but they certainly didn't want to have a massive war. So it entirely comes down to your judgment about individuals and the ideology which is guiding them. If you are dealing with a fanatical man like Adolf Hitler who actually enjoys and worships war, long live war, he said just before the Sudeten crisis blew up, then nothing is going to be enough for him. And appeasing Hitler was, in the words of one conservative member of the House of Lords, akin to scratching a crocodile's nose in the hope of making it purr. But the concept of trying to do a deal or making adjustments to existing treaties to avoid a Second World War under a different German leader is not ridiculous. 
or wouldn't have been ridiculous. What do you think that Chamberlain and his cabinet should have done differently? Well, I think it's very difficult when historians start saying this is what they must have done when we weren't there. But equally, the whole point of this book is to try and imagine and record the circumstances in which the players acted so that you can yourself wrestle with this uh, enormous moral political dilemma that the Chamberlain government faced. I don't think that you can ever say that the Second World War would have been avoided if British or French politicians had done this, that or the other. Because once Hitler had come to power, the chances of another war were always extremely high. If there was to have been a time when the British and French could have combined against Hitler without provoking a major war, it would have been sometime before 1936, up to and including the reoccupation of the Rhineland. But there was not the will in either Britain or France to go to war, certainly not to kick Germany out of her own territory. So that's not really a realistic alternative. So therefore, we're looking at either deterring Hitler post the reoccupation of the Rhineland or creating the most favourable circumstances with which to confront him in battle. And I think the best option then was this idea of the Grand Alliance. There was a majority of states in Europe who were prepared to oppose Nazism, who were frightened by the aggressive intentions of Hitler and who could have combined in a defensive bloc, which would have either deterred Hitler or, probably more likely, confronted him with a two-front war from the very beginning. So Chamberlain should have been better at forging those alliances? Yes, Hitler gets off incredibly lightly in the 30s. He is able to pick off every victim one after the other, and that's incredibly useful to him. He doesn't ever have large numbers of states lining up against him. And then finally, there are a large number of states lining up against him in September 1938. There is the possibility of Czechoslovakia, which had 32 very well-equipped, highly motivated divisions facing him over the Czech frontier. There is their alliance with France, uh, who has a massive army facing only eight German divisions on the Western Front. There is the alliance between Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. And then there is Britain, the uh, centre of the world's largest empire. What the Allies never realised is that the strategic advantage lay with them, not with Germany in 1938. How should we view those who appeased Hitler? Should we view them as, quote, guilty men, as many did at the time? Well, guilty men implies a moral judgment, which I think historians should try and avoid where possible. But there is little doubt that the policy failed and that Neville Chamberlain and his leading ministers were uniquely responsible for this policy. So it can't be described as anything other than a failure. And the one great achievement which Chamberlain did have, which was that when Britain did go to war in September 1939, she went united and with her empire behind her, this was born of the failure of his policy. It was born of the fact that the British thought, well, we have tried so hard to appease this man and he has lied and broken his word and proven that he cannot be trusted and is out for European hegemony for Germany. We must oppose him. This was born of the fact that Chamberlain had failed to make any sort of deal with Hitler. So, yes, these these are the men who were responsible for the policy and it was a disastrous policy. Whether you would go as far as to call them guilty men 80 years on, I'm not so sure. That was Tim Bouverie. 
Tim's book, Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill and the Road to War, is available now, published by Bodley Head. You can find plenty more on 20th century history at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when I'll be talking to John Wolfe about Victorian freak shows. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.